have your Bible, please open with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Uh, I believe that's going to start on page 8 of the hardback Bibles that are around it. Feel free to use that one. Uh, the goal today is to cover Genesis 12 through 22. I'm well aware that the goal will likely not happen. I won't keep you here forever, I promise. Uh, perfectly content with hitting the pause button and saying to be continued on to next week. But uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, there's so much richness here that I don't want to rush. I want us to marvel at the grace of God and the glory of God we'll see here. But we'll start in Genesis 12. But let me catch you up, especially for those of you who haven't been here. We've been looking at... God's family, God's people, the covenant people of God. And what we've seen is that that starts in the Garden of Eden. That God creates Adam and Eve in his own image, and he gives them some basic guidelines to follow. He blesses them. He puts them in the garden, calls them to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, to fill it, to guard and keep the garden to guard and keep what is holy and to advance it out to the ends of the earth that the culture of Eden, this heavenly, glorious culture that God graciously blesses Adam and Eve with, that they are to be fruitful with it, to multiply it, and to advance it to the ends of the earth. But one thing they're not supposed to do is eat from one particular tree. To eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden by God. And if they ate of it, the day they ate of it, they would surely die, God tells them. So you see in that basic layout and agreement the idea of covenant. That if they do what the Lord says, if they're obedient to the Lord, they will be blessed. They will be fruitful. They will be multiplied. God will give them greater and greater life and glory and blessing. Which is often why this covenant is referred to as a covenant of life or a creation covenant because it happens at the creation. But the general idea is if you obey God, you will be blessed with greater and greater life and fruitfulness and glory. But if they disobey, covenant curses will come. Death will come. And not simply physical death, but spiritual death. And all the consequences thereof, the curse of the law will fall upon them. The wages of sin will fall upon them, which is death and condemnation. And of course, as the serpent, that ancient dragon, the devil himself, creeps into the garden, slithers into the garden. Of course, that happens later as a punishment. Whatever he does into the garden. I know you. some of you got all kinds of theories. Did he fly? Did he run? What did he do? There's something going on crazy with the serpent. The craziest thing is he talks. He comes in and starts deceiving Eve. And instead of Adam doing what any husband's called to do and protecting his wife and crushing the head of the serpent, instead he watches to see what's going to happen. He lets his wife be tempted and deceived. And then he follows in her footsteps. And they break God's <coughs> covenant of life. They break God's covenant of of creation and then God begins to pronounce curses over them starting with the serpent and then to the woman and then to Adam Adam lasts as Adam is the head of his household and not just the head of his household but the whole of the human race he is our federal head our representative the one who represents us all up there especially his own household he should have been leading Loving, serving, protecting, guiding his wife. He should have been loving his neighbor, his closest neighbor, his wife. And he should have been loving the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But instead, they loved the flesh. And they fell into sin. They followed after their own desires instead of believing God and, and taking him at his word. But what is truly astonishing about all of this is that God doesn't simply take them out. 
God doesn't just wipe them off the face of the earth, though that's exactly what they deserve. God doesn't immediately kill them. Though they die spiritually in that moment, and though they begin to die physically in that moment, and they are headed towards physical death and eternal condemnation, God then begins to pronounce promises over them. Promises of grace that from the line of Eve will come a Savior who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And within that promise are all kinds of grace. One, Eve's not going to die, at least not immediately. Two, there's going to be a Savior to save them from their sin and from the evil one. And so Adam looks at this and he marvels at it and he believes it, which is why he names his wife Eve, because Eve means the mother of all living. Adam takes God at his word the second time. The first time he failed to take him at his word. The second time he believed God. And God responds to the faith of Adam and to these, these faithful recipients of their covenant promises by covering them in a sacrifice. It says he, he covers them in some sort of garment of skin, which implies an animal sacrifice has happened pointing to the ultimate atonement of sin that happens in the sacrifice of Christ. God lavishes them with grace instead of wrath and fury. And what we've seen is that what he does in that moment is he establishes a covenant of grace with his people. God's covenant of life that Adam broke gives way to a covenant of grace where God is ultimately promising redemption in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that same covenant promise is what carries on from Genesis to Revelation. That everybody, whether they're in the Old Testament or the New Testament or today, if anybody's been saved, they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, they're looking forward to the coming person and work of Jesus. And for us, we look back to Christ who already came, who has promised to come again. But all of us are saved because of the gospel. We're all saved by the grace of Christ in the covenant of grace that starts here from Genesis 3.15 onward. Now, how can God do that? How can God respond to covenant breaking and sin with a covenant of grace? Well, the reason he can do that is because he's God and he knows all and has ordained all. God was not surprised by the sins of Adam and Eve. He knew it was going to happen before he even cre created them. And so before he created humanity, before he created anything, God made a covenant within the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit make a covenant of redemption together, promising to not only create people, but to redeem people. And that Christ, before time began agreed to go to the cross on behalf of sinners like us. So the reason the covenant of life gives way to a covenant of grace is because of God's covenant of redemption. That before the foundation of the world, God set his love on ragtag sinners like you and me. That God being this kind of God, this glorious, gracious, loving God that he not only overflowed into creation, but overflowed into redemption because that's who he is, which is what he tells Moses, as we'll see in the weeks to come. When Moses asks to see God's glory, God responds by proclaiming his name. And what he tells Moses is that he is a God who is merciful, gracious and abounding in steadfast love. He is slow to anger and praise God that is the truth because if it weren't, we would all be dead and condemned. But God lavishes his mercy and grace upon us. And we see that unfold as the story goes on. From Adam and Eve, we see Cain and Abel. And what we see is that the war that God promises is going to happen in Genesis 3.15 between the offspring of the evil one and the offspring of Eve happens from both the offspring of Eve, right? That Cain is actually the offspring of the evil one, though he's born to Adam and Eve. But Abel is the offspring of Eve and thus the offspring of 
grace because he's united to Christ by faith. We see this faith in what happens when Cain and Abel offer sacrifices and worship God. And Abel's is accepted and Cain's is rejected. And the reason we, the reason it's accepted, even though we're not told there, is because Abel has faith. Which is why he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. But Cain is not simply snuffed out or ignored. God graciously tells him, if you follow in suit with Abel, if, if you do well, will you not also be accepted? Right? If you trust in me and obey me by faith, will you not also receive this mercy and grace and acceptance that, that Abel has? Humble yourself, repent and believe. Trust me. And he warns them and he says, look, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Right? Adam and Eve are called to have dominion over the world. And they fail. And then God seeks to see it happen again in Cain and Abel. And he calls Cain to have dominion over the world, even over his own sinful flesh. You must have self-control. Right? And we, we know this is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? It's amazing to me that in order to have self-control, God in his sovereign grace has to give it to you. Work that out and you're trying to figure out free will and God's sovereignty. You can't actually control yourself rightly unless God so gives you the ability to do so. And God calls Cain to do so. To have dominion over his flesh. To fight sin. Pursue holiness. Trust in me. Do the right thing. Don't give in. Oh, but he gives in. Sin has dominion over him instead of him having dominion over it. His sinful flesh wins the battle and he kills his own brother. Which is pretty tragic in light of the promise of Genesis 3.15 that God in his grace is going to provide a savior through the line of Eve. Because now we know it's not Cain. He's of the evil one. Which is what 1 John chapter 3 tells us. That Cain is of his father, the devil. He's evil just like the serpent. But Abel, Abel seemed promising. But Cain snuffed him out. Cain took him out. So, are we forsaken? Is our God not going to be faithful to his promises? May it never be. God is always true to his promises. He cannot lie, and he will not lie. He will always keep his word. And so, Adam and Eve are blessed with another son, Seth. And there we see a godly line developed. After Seth is born, it says, in those days... Men began to call upon the name of the Lord, meaning the men in Seth's line, the men and women in Seth's line were calling upon God by grace through faith, trusting in the promises that were ultimately pointing to Christ and being saved. Seth was raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and he raised his descendants in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and on and on it went, even to some that were so righteous, like Enoch, who was taken up to be with the Lord. It says he walked with the Lord and he had such great communion with the Lord that apparently he didn't die. There's two people in the Bible, or two people in the Bible that don't seem to die, Enoch and Elijah. I told Eli, he's got a lot to live up to. You gotta be that righteous that God says, you know what? We're gonna skip death for you. You're gonna come with me. But that's what happens because the godly line of Seth starts living in light of the promise. And following God. As I've been pointing out, we often say today, or we hear said today, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And one, that's not entirely true, because the Bible tells us that Christianity is in fact a religion. But it is indeed a relationship as well. But it is a covenant relationship, where we are called to covenant faithfulness, which is ultimately obedient faith. Faith that trusts and obeys. A living faith. And that's what Abel had, and that's what Seth had, and that's what his godly line has and begins to be fruitful and multiply. But then something goes wrong. 
Corruption begins to happen. Sin creeps in. Some sort of intermarriage happens. We can debate about this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the story. Is it between the godly line of Seth and the wicked line of Cain? Or is it some sort of fallen angels and man or something else? But something happens where greater corruption grows and depravity gets so bad that God grieves over creating mankind and decides to judge the earth, save one family. Out of all the earth, there's one family that's walking in righteousness, Noah. Noah is a righteous man who walks with the Lord. He's in communion with God. In fact, it says he's blameless. Now, that doesn't mean that he's not sinful, but it does mean that he's trusting in God's promises by grace and is therefore counted blameless, counted righteous by God's grace through faith in Christ. That he's united to the blameless one and is seeking to fight sin, pursue holiness, and to trust and obey because of God's grace. And yet, God doesn't just save Noah. God saves Noah and his household. So just the same way that Adam answers for his household, now Noah is standing in the gap for his household. And in light of Noah's righteousness, God decides to save Noah and his household. And they are brought into the ark as God unleashes the flood of judgment upon the world. Now, Noah's household was not all righteous. Directly after they are saved, Ham begins to fall into sin and into covenant curses. You have three children. You have Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And both the other two seem to be walking in righteousness and trusting God. And we see the fruit of that throughout the Bible. But Ham so sins against his father, ultimately breaking God's commandment to honor his mother and father properly. He so sins against Noah that Noah calls covenant curses down upon Ham. God establishes a covenant with Adam and he confirms that covenant with Noah, as we saw. But his own son fails to live up to it. Now, 1 Peter 3 tells us that Noah and his family were all baptized in the flood on the ark. It's a picture of baptism as God's waters pour down upon them. And it points to the fact that God has laid claim to them as his family for his covenant purposes. They are now in the family of God and they have to live up to that. They have to trust and obey. They have to believe God and place their faith in his promises. That's what that baptism marks out. They are not their own. They've been bought with a price. Therefore, they are to glorify God in their body. But Ham almost immediately falls into sin and fails to do that. And from there, things continue to go astray. Things get worse and worse. God establishes this covenant with Noah where he promises never to flood the world again the way he did before. Puts a rainbow in the sky where it's a reminder to him and to us that God will not unleash judgment and fury upon the world the way he has before in that same way. And you notice the, the rainbow imaging like a bow and arrow, but the bow is pointed up at God, where he's essentially saying, if I break this covenant, may the curses come down upon me, because I will not fail to keep my word. So as you see the bow pointed at him, it's reminding us that we can take God at his word. That he does not lie, that he keeps his promises. But even wrapped up in that covenant, there's law and there's promises of blessing and curse. Right? If a man sheds another man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. We see justice being elaborated on and established even further as we see the moral law being established and even judicial law being established. And of course, Noah, the first thing he does as he touches dry land is he offers up sacrifices to God, showing ceremonial law. So we see God's law right there in the covenant of Noah, and man is meant to live in obedience to God's law. He's meant to do it by faith, not as a way of salvation, but he's meant to do it nonetheless, to obey God, and to keep his word. But we see this tragic event unfold with the Tower of Babel. 
And so what happens is a man begins to rebel against God's law and gets to the point to where they say, we don't need God. We don't need him. We can do what we want for our glory. We'll build a tower up to heaven. We will essentially be God. Which is the same sin, ultimately, that Adam and Eve had fallen into. We don't need God. We can make our own rules. We can be God. Which is what we all do when we don't take God at his word. But God will have none of it. God will not be mocked. And so, even though he's been gracious again and again, God responds in a type of covenant curse by confusing the languages of men and giving them multiple languages and scattering them about keeping them from working together to bring such unrighteousness upon the world that it would be like the days of Noah once again. But unrighteousness is prevalent nonetheless. We see it continue on in many different ways through the line of Ham, but through the line of Shem, we see some righteousness. We see it in Japheth as well, but in Shem, we see especially some of the promises of God unfolding more and more, especially as we get to one particular descendant of Shem. Of course, Shem is descended from Noah and Noah from Seth and Seth from Adam and Eve, tying all the way back to the promises in Genesis 3.15. And that brings us to Genesis 12. So Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. Look along with me as I read. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Marah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, life-giving word of our God. Praise be to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much here. There's so much beauty and promise here. There's so much grace. God, help us not to miss it. Help us to marvel at it and to respond appropriately by faith so that we would be your people and trust that you are our God. A God who is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I know that was a very long introduction, but you got the context in the introduction, right? So Abraham comes from the line of Shem, right? So he's coming from this godly line, and now he comes on the scene. And look at what happens. First, chapter 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram. Now, I know he's not named Abraham yet, but we'll get to that, the Lord's willing, and I'll explain it when we get there. But notice who's talking to Abram. The Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Your Bible might pronounce or might translate it Yahweh or Jehovah, which is right. Right? This is the God who is the existing one. So the one who has always existed, who creates out of the overflow of his existence and sufficiency, and redeems out of the same, is now speaking and calling Abram. To go from his country and his kindred, from his father's house, to the land that God will show him. So he's likely in what would be modern day Iraq. 
uh, though it talks about Haran in a minute, and that's kind of modern-day Turkey. But Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern-day Iraq. So he's likely some sort of pagan Gentile, not rightly <laughs> worshiping God. And yet God calls him to submit to him and to worship him. He starts with a command, go, go from your country. But he also gives promise in verse two. I, I will make of you a great nation. Right? So it's not just go, go with no hint of what's going on, but go with this promise, go with this blessing. Go with this grace. It's the same pattern we've already seen. Adam is blessed by God and put in the garden and given commandments. Abel, Seth, his godly line, Noah, all of them are blessed by God. They're given grace by God and called to then live in obedience to God. This is what we do. We trust and we're saved. We're united to to God, uh, to God's grace in Christ by faith, and then we obey. We trust and obey. It flows from the grace we have received. We've seen again and again that the law can be summarized with love. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But 1 John 4, 19 points out that we love because God first loved us. We obey because we've received love and grace in Christ. God grabs a hold of us and calls us, and then after he's lavished his mercy and grace upon us, we obey. Even God calling Abraham to go is grace. Abraham, some random dude in the Middle East, and God says, hey, you, I want you. Go where I tell you, and I'm going to bless you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Now, we've been talking about covenant theology as we're going through this. And covenant, a covenant is a, an agreement between two or more parties where there are consequences and reward, essentially. There's, there's blessing and there's curses. There's an overall agreement of what's supposed to happen. And there's blessings and there's curses. So when, when God speaks to Abraham, notice he uses covenant language. I will bless you. I know we use that lightly, right? Somebody sneezes, bless you. Like you realize you just entered into a contract. Right? <laughs> no, that, that we, speak, we speak these words lightly, right? Just how we use the word love lightly. I love pizza. That's not how that word's meant to be used, though pizza's awesome. Um, but this blessing language, when God uses it, he knows what he's saying, and he's not using it lightly. He's giving covenant blessings to Abraham because he has now brought Abraham into the existing covenant of grace that started in Genesis 3.15 because of the pre-existing covenant of redemption that started before the foundation of the world. It's rooted in God's electing love. Why Abraham? Because God chose. But why? Did he deserve it? No. Random guy in the Middle East. Now he's from a line that traces back to a godly line, and that's good. But Abraham himself has done nothing to deserve this. It is God's sovereign grace and God's sovereign choice, which is how he works. It's his prerogative. And he decides to bless Abraham. I will bless you, covenant language, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice it's not the end-all, be-all just with Abraham. It's meant to then be fruitful and multiply. Well, this reminds us of God's purpose with Adam and Eve. Right? I'm going to bless you, place you in the garden, give you all these good things, call you then to be fruitful, multiply, to subdue the earth, have dominion over it, take it out to the ends of the earth. Guard and keep what is holy, but not in such a way that you store it up for yourself, but that you multiply it out to the world. Same idea here. I'm going to bless you, make you great, so that you'll be a blessing. So that the, the grace that I lavish upon you will be lavished upon the nations. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, if we had any doubt about this being covenant language, we see it emphasized here. Blessings 
and curses. Right? I will bless you and I will curse those who dishonor you. I will bless those who bless you and cause you to be a blessing to others. But those who rebel against you, those who dishonor you, those who mock you, belittle you, your enemies, I will curse them. But in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is an astonishing statement. I wonder how many of us actually believe it. Paul actually calls this statement the gospel. I referred to it earlier in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 3, 7, or Genesis, Galatians 3, rather. Galatians 3, 7 and 8, Paul says, Know that, know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So when God says in Genesis 12, verse 3, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul translates that as all the nations shall be blessed. And he says, that's the gospel. That's the good news about the personal work of Jesus Christ. Now, if I had to guess, most of you think about the gospel merely as personal salvation. This is how my soul gets saved and I go to heaven by trusting in the gospel. And Paul's saying it's actually bigger than that. It's not just about you. It's about all the families of the earth being blessed. And Paul says by families, he means the nations. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in the context here, blessed means brought into the covenant of grace and covered by the grace of God in Christ and therefore saved. That's why Paul says this is gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ back in Genesis 12. Because the good news of Jesus Christ starts in Genesis 3 and unfolds all the way through. This gospel blessing is what Abraham has given, and that's what we receive. We're recipients of this promise. We are products of this promise. I mean, if, if somebody told Abraham, because of what I'm going to do with you and in your family, a whole group of people in Gerald, Texas are going to be saved. He's going to say What's Terrell, Texas? What do you mean? So, oh, these are a part of these, these families that are going to be blessed. The families of the earth, the nations. They're going to be a part of this nation, the United States of America, in the great republic of Texas, right? And they, they are going to be brought into this grace because of this promise that I'm giving you. This is why Paul says this is gospel. This is tied to the very heart of of the gospel. The gospel is not merely about how you get into heaven. The gospel is about how the earth is redeemed and all the nations of the Lord are brought in to his grace. Right? This is about God redeeming the world, the nations, the families of the earth. It sounds a lot like Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go therefore into all nations, baptizing them, making disciples. Right? This is what we're called to do, to baptize the nations and make them disciples, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. This is the same idea. That command of Christ, as he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, is directly tied to the promise that the triune God gave Abraham. As Isaiah 11 verse 9 says, the earth will be covered in the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The families of the earth shall be blessed. God doesn't lie. He keeps his promises. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and generation will be blessed and brought into this covenant of grace because God keeps his word. He doesn't lie. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So that's modern-day Turkey. But notice what he does. God gives a command tied to promises, and Abram goes. Abram went. He trusts and he obeys. He has obedient faith. The Lord speaks, he listens, he goes. And Abram took, verse 5, Sarah, his wife, Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, 
and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now, hang on. God called you, Abraham. What, what, what gives when you say, hey, we're going, come on, crew? Abraham is the head of his household, and he's got a large household. He's got immediate family. He's got extended family. He's got servants. He's got possessions. He's got all these people. He's got an entourage with him. And God allows it because God operates through covenant relationships through households. That starts with the household of Adam and Eve and unfolds even further till you get to the household of Noah. And here we see another household, Abram, his wife, Sarah, Lot, his brother's son, so on and so forth, all the way down the line. Come, bring your household with you. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people focus on that land promise and say, Oh, well, Israel is due this because God does not lie. Well, yes, Israel is due this, but who is Israel and what is the land? Romans 4 is going to tell us in verse 13, as I read earlier, that Abraham was to inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus tells us the meek shall inherit the earth. Galatians 3 tells us that the children of Abraham are those who have faith. Those who have faith are the meek, Christians. So Abraham and all of his true children who have faith will inherit not just some land in Canaan, not just the land of Israel that we know today, but the earth. This is pointing to something bigger. Just as when God promises a blessing to Abraham and to his family, it's pointing to something bigger as a blessing to all the families of the earth. So the whole point here is not for Abraham just to merely get some land in the Middle East, but for him and the blessings he has to overtake the world, to get it all. New heavens, new earth, everything will belong to Christ and his people. That's what the promise is, the promise is here that is given. So he believes it. From there he moved to the hill country, verse 8, on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. Well, we've seen that before with Seth and his descendants. This is a man of faith. Call upon him, calling upon the name of the Lord. And God have mercy on me, a sinner. Use me in spite of me. I know I don't deserve it, but I trust in Christ who is perfectly worthy. Would you use me? Would you have mercy on me? Use me for your glory. I'm a wretch that deserves condemnation, but I believe your son paid the penalty for me, and I trust in him. I call upon your name, Lord. Help me to live for your glory. Is any of that ringing a bell with any of you? Am I the only one that prays something like that almost every morning? God, help me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. But if you look at that scenario with the, the publican and the tax collector, the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, you've got one saying, God, thank you, I'm not like that guy. And the other guy beating his chest, not even able to look up to heaven, saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. I so identify with the tax collector. What do I have to boast in? What do any of us have to boast in? Any good we have, we received it by grace. Abraham's the type of guy who gets this. He's walking in this sort of thing. And so he keeps walking. Verse 9, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now jump to chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. It says, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar to an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So you see time going on. 
God's not coming and speaking again just yet. Yet Abram is continually, continually, continually calling upon the name of the Lord. He's walking by faith. Both him and his household with them is following. As for Abraham and his house, they will serve the Lord. And they are. But Abram and Lot's households get so big that it requires them to have to split up. There's not enough room for both of them where they're at. God is so blessing them. They're being fruitful. They're multiplying. They're running out of, running out of space. So they separate. Then you get down to chapter 13, verses 14 through 18. The Lord says to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Amir, which, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. What do you see here? All the land that Abram sees is going to be given to him. And Paul tells us it's actually more than he sees. It's all the land. The whole world belongs to God's people because the whole world belongs to God. And we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And notice he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Now, if your house is anything like mine, you probably have some dust in it. You ever tried to count the dust particles? You can't do it. Like if you just get a, a pile of dirt and lay it on the coffee table, try to count each individual grain of dirt. You, you won't be able to do it. You can't. And that's the point. God is going to so bless Abraham that that's how his descendants are. Innumerable. And so this is all pointing us to the grand fulfillment of the gospel with the new heavens and the new earth and people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and generation. More people than we could ever imagine. We so often today have a posture of defeat. Like we take one verse out of context where Jesus says, few who will be there will find it, talking about entering into the narrow gate. And we say, see, hardly anybody's ever going to get saved. And we forget that most of the Bible says there's going to be so many people saved that you can't number them. Like God is going to just unleash and lavish this much grace upon people from every nation and every generation that if you were to try to count them, it would be innumerable. You would never be able to do it. The multitudes that must be in heaven. This is, this is our God. He's this gracious. There's a context to that verse about few people being, being, being able to go through the narrow gate. Namely, Jews in that day not wanting to listen to the Jewish Savior. They don't want to listen to their Messiah, and they didn't. And so few found it, but a few did find it. Paul being one, and Paul tells us, God's promises to Abraham are coming true. The world will be given to him, and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will indeed be saved. The nations will come to Christ. It will happen. Well, we continue on. I was going to point you to Abraham and Melchizedek in, in Genesis 14, but you can look at that on your own. Jump down to Genesis 15, verses 1 through 21, which we won't get that far. It gets so good here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Or if you've got the King James... I am your shield and your very great reward. God himself is the great reward. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Oh, beloved, this is, 
so good, so beautiful. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham. Fear not. I am your shield. I am thy exceedingly great reward. So God and his covenant blessings. This is what Abram's being reminded of. And as he's reminded by God of this, he responds. But how can you say you're keeping covenant with me? How can you say you're going to lavish me with these rewards, with these blessings, when I don't have an offspring? How can a promise tied to my offspring happen if I don't have an offspring? How can my offspring be as the dust or as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky? How can they be this mighty, this many, if I don't even have one? Well, he says, this man, not this guy in your household that's not really of your bloodline, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. I will make good on my word. My gospel will be victorious. I will accomplish the things I have promised. And he brings them outside and he points them towards heaven. He says, number the stars if you're able. Heaven will not be underpopulated. So shall your offspring be. And he believes the Lord. Notice he doesn't simply believe in the Lord. He believes the Lord. That's what faith is. Faith is not simply believing in God, but believing God. Faith takes God at his word. That's what Adam failed to do in the beginning, but then does later. That's what Seth does, but what, what, what Cain failed to do, what Noah does, but what Ham failed to do, right? And what so many of us have failed to do time and time again, we failed to take God at his word. But Abraham believes the Lord. He doesn't just believe in he doesn't just acknowledge the existence of. That's what demons do. But Christians believe the Lord. They have genuine faith. Faith that trusts and obeys. Faith that takes God at his word. And when you do, God says it is counted to you as righteousness. This is what, what I read in Romans 4, right? That faith is what counts us righteous. And the reason is because faith is what unites us to Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. How do we become the righteousness of God? By being united to Jesus by faith. And that's what happens to Abraham. He's united to Jesus by faith because he takes God at his word. And his word says, your offspring, those children of promise who will have faith and be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will be as the stars in the sky. So I had to Google this. How many stars are in the sky? If you Google that, you will get this answer. Astronomers estimate that there are 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and there are millions upon millions of other galaxies. That's a lot of stars. I can't count that high, if that's the point. Neither can Abraham. God is saying, my grace is so amazing. You can trust me. You can hold fast to me. You can live for me. And when you believe me, it's counted to you as righteousness. Because you're united to me. Abraham believes. He takes God at his word. But notice what's said next. Verse 7. And God says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Okay. I want to believe you, God. God says, okay, let me give you this word of declaration, of promise. And Abraham believes him and is counted to him as righteousness. And then God goes on and says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. So he's talking promise again. And Abraham says, but how am I to know? So it's almost like I believe, 
Help my unbelief. Mark 24, right? Mark 9, 24. You ever relate to that? God, I believe your word, but I kind of don't live like I do. I trust you, but I struggle to trust and obey. I believe, help my unbelief. How am I to know that I shall possess it, God? How am I to know that I can take you at your word? Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abraham's thinking, I, I asked uh, how I could, can trust you for your word. Um, I didn't ask for a, a grocery list. This is weird, right? <laughs> but there's a point, and Abraham seems to get it. Because Abraham responds, verse 10, he brought him all of these, and Abraham cuts them in half and lays each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. That's weird, and if you don't understand the context to it, it's really weird. <laughs> what you have going on here is what's called an ancient Near East suzerain vassal treaty. Yeah, you all knew that already, right? So I remember in Bible college being in ancient world history, having to learn about this, and I was up till 2 a.m. every night studying and had to get up at 5 a.m. And I was living off of, you know, monster energy drinks and everything else. It was miserable. But I learned about this back then. So here, it's coming in handy after all these years, after all that torture back then. But what it is, is essentially you take animals, you have an agreement between two parties, two or more parties, and often uh, a suzerain vassal treaty was made between a conquering king and the conquered. And right, there's these, these stipulations laid out. There's promises given, promises of blessing, promises of curses. See, that's a product of the curse of the fall right there. Uh, you cannot take communion. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But you have promises of blessing, promises of curse. And then they lay these animals out and they cut them in half and they walk in between them and they're saying... May what happened to these animals happen to me if I break my word. If I break this contract, may I be killed like they've been killed. Right? And we do this today too. Right? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Right? We, we say things like that all the time. Anybody? Somebody kill that thing. <laughs> Take dominion over the wasp. <laughs> um, so, God is essentially establishing covenant conditions and promises here with what he's doing. He's asking for these animals for this reason, so that he can promise Adam or Abraham rather these greater blessings. Now what's amazing though is Abraham's already in covenant with God. Abraham has already been promised blessings. Curses have already been brought up, blessings have already been brought up. But now God is making it clear you are in covenant with me and there are covenant promises tied to this. So he does all of this. He cuts them all in half. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So why did Israel go into slavery and bondage in Egypt for 400 years? Because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. God was actually being patient and gracious with the Amorites that were in the land, well done, they were in the land, and so for 400 years, he doesn't bring Israel into the land just yet, because he's being patient with them, but he tells them all of this, because he wants them, verse 13, to know for certain what God has promised. So verse 12, a deep sleep falls on Abram, very similar to the language of, of what happens with Adam, when a deep sleep falls upon him, and he takes a rib from his side and creates Eve, but here, God is giving covenant promises as a deep sleep falls upon Abram, and he wants them to know for sure, for certain, to have assurance. And then he goes on, verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land. 
from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenanites, the Kenizzites, the Canaanites, yeah, it's just a bunch of people I can't pronounce, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, all these people, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I'm going to give you all of this. I'm going to give you the new heavens, the new earth. People from every tribe, tongue, nation, and generation will be saved because of this promise I'm giving you. And notice how he gives them assurance of the promise. He passes through the animals on his own. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. That seems weird to you, but when we get to the book of Exodus, it will make more sense. It's like the pillar of smoke the smoking fire pot, and the pillar of fire, this flaming torch, right? This is a theophany. This is God revealing himself to his people even before the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, Christ Jesus. And he's saying, look, I'm passing through. You don't even have to pass through. You lay there and listen. You lay there and watch. I'm going through. God is saying, May this happen to me if I don't keep my word. But God keeps his word. He never fails to do what he's promised. God cannot lie and cannot die. That's what Hebrews tells us. So God is here swearing by himself. Hebrews 6 verse 13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And it says, Since he cannot die and he cannot lie, this word is golden. This promise is golden. It can be taken to the bank. Nothing whatsoever can break this covenant. Because God is the one who's keeping the conditions. God is the one who has walked through it and says, let curses fall upon me if I break this covenant. But I won't break this covenant. I can't lie. Let death come upon me if I break this covenant. But I won't break this covenant because I can't die. God is abundantly merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Even that language, steadfast love, it means covenant love. His hesed love. And that's what he's lavishing upon Abraham. And that's what he's lavishing upon us here. This is the gospel. That Jesus loved us. Lived for us. Died for us. Giving himself for sinners like us. And rising again in power. So that all who turn to him by faith would be saved from sin, Satan, death, and the wrath of God. And would inherit these promises with Abraham. Would be true children of Abraham. You, you all know the children's song. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons have followed Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. That's what we see here. God keeps his word. God keeps covenant. Now, as we'll see next week, we are responsible to trust in it, to take God at his word. The covenant condition for us is faith, simple faith, childlike faith, but true living faith. But God, God has met every other condition. God has taken the wrath that we deserved upon himself. He's kept the law on our behalf. He rose from the grave for sinners like us so that we could be raised in newness of life with Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace we have been saved. This is what we see in this promise. God saves sinners. And it happens in and through Christ alone. Christ is the one who meets every covenant condition. That's what that covenant of redemption was all about. Right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit making an agreement not only to create, but to redeem. God the Father looking at the Son and saying, 
If you're going to save them, it will cost you everything. And Jesus says, I will joyfully love them and give myself for them. I will pay it all for my people who trust in me, who stand upon me, who take me at my word and believe me. Beloved, that's what we're called to do here, to follow the faith of Abraham and to take God at his word, to trust and obey, to believe the Lord. We are to stand on Christ the solid rock, knowing that God will keep his oath, he will keep his covenant, and he will keep his people, because Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.